The views expressed on the patient's perspective come directly from patients, so they are not intended to diagnose, treat, or replace professional medical advice. Information coming from the patient's perspective is for entertainment and educational purposes only. So if you have any health concerns regarding yourself or anyone else, please see a physician. The Patient's Perspective is a podcast created by patients for patients and does not focus on any specific disease or condition. Content may make you laugh, cry, and question your moral beliefs surrounding healthcare and the many issues patients run into while in the system. Finally, the most important point of view is cast into the light. The patient's perspective. On today's episode of The Patient's Perspective, a random drop with a very special guest. How systems have fallen behind advancements in accessibility and how new technology can improve patients' quality of life. Hi, everybody. Um, Candice here, co-host. And um, I thought I would introduce our special guest today because we connected in an interesting way. Um, to track back to my first episode as co-host, we talked about the internet and technology. And um, I've been getting recommendations for a couple of months to connect with a person named Jeff Preston, who I had no idea who it was. And then I was downtown in London. And Somebody told me that I should connect with a Jeff Preston when I was describing the business that Kyla and I are trying to build, Connected Hearts Helping Canada, an accessibility firm. So I invited Jeff to be my friend, and I didn't even know why. He accepted very quickly, and then I discovered who he was and immediately asked him to be a guest here on the patient's perspective. So um, today we have Dr. Jeff Preston. He is the Associate Professor for Disability Studies at King's University College at Western University. He's a motivational speaker. He's an advocate and a bit of a general troublemaker. So we're excited to have him here today. And um, just to, when uh, we told him the, the title that we had come up with, he came back with, awesome, let's do it like this. <laughs> so we're going to talk today about um, technical, technological advancements and how they can improve quality of life and maybe um, I'm going to just throw it over to Jeff, but he mentioned a term that I'd never heard before, um, the tech divide. So I'm just going to see where we go with today. And thanks so much, Jeff, for being here. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. 
No, thank you so much, Kyla and Candice. Uh, really excited uh, to join you and, and to talk about this stuff. Uh, you know, we were sort of joking before the show that, uh, I, you know, I think you guys have figured me out that I was a, a big nerd. And so you're like, oh, we should get this big nerd on to talk about technology. Uh, and here I am, uh, ready to be a big nerd for you. Well, thanks very much, Jeff. So, um so did you want to explain to the listeners out there, Jeff, about what a tech, uh, tech divide is? Yeah, for sure. So I, I think when we, when we talk a little bit about disability and technology, uh, there's sort of two stories here, two parallel stories that in some ways are running side by side together, but in other ways are running rapidly away from each other, diverging in fairly significant ways. And so on the one hand, we have this sort of feel-good story about how advanced technology is being invented every day that is helping people with disabilities to overcome their challenges and limitations and the things that they're not able to do. Um, this sounds probably a little bit like PR because often it is. Uh, so we have this one story of this like utopian future of a world without disability brought to us by adaptive technology. But then on the other hand, we have this other reality, this brutal reality at times in which technology is perhaps not always as accessible uh, to everyone. Uh, and so we have this huge body of research that actually exists outside of the world, specifically of disability, uh, that is interested in the way that different nations and basic levels of development and economic access is resulting in this ever-increasing divide between the haves and the have-nots. Uh, specifically those who have access to the internet and those who do not. Now, while this is often thought of in a global context, it's also been broken down into uh, local, national, and geographic uh, configurations as well. I mean, right here in Canada, the experiences of access to the internet dramatically vary based on whether or not you live in a major city center or whether you live in a rural center. Uh, you know, there's a huge difference between the internet that I'm connecting to high-speed internet that I have right now in London, Ontario, uh, versus, you know, three hours north of here where my family lives, uh, where they have uh, very little access to the internet, uh, very slow speeds, not able to use things like streaming platforms. Now, for some people, you might say, well, so what? Uh, you know, slow internet, fast internet, who cares? Well, in a world that is increasingly uh, galvanized around digital cultures, uh, so for instance, uh, one of the biggest shows that happened in 2022 was not on cable or satellite. Uh, it was, of course, Stranger Things on Netflix. You have a group of people that are now being left out of a cultural conversation because they don't have the technical infrastructure in order to access things like Netflix. But even more worrisome, you have individuals who are not then able to access massive public spheres that are becoming critical and perhaps exclusive for things like job applications, where most employers now are looking to online job ads and job recruitment strategies to find new employees. So what happens when you don't have access to the internet? Well, you might not be able to apply to that job after all. So there's this ever-increasing divide that we see between people that have access to uh, what we call information communication technologies, or ICTs, uh, and those who do not. Now, when we add disability to this mix, we get a really fun thing. Uh, and I use the word fun with uh, tongue firmly 
placed in cheek, uh, which is that access to technology is not just a financial issue for some people with disabilities. It is an issue, absolutely. But the reality is that a lot of our uh, information communication technologies, computers, cell phones, tablets, are designed with a specific user in mind, specifically a person who has five working fingers on each hand, that has two working eyes, that has two working ears, that has a mind that functions in a very specific way. And anybody else who wants to access the technology needs to augment it. So when you go to buy a computer, for instance, you will get a laptop and it's got a keyboard, it's got a screen, it's got speakers, so you're able to engage with this computer. But what if you are someone who has a visual limitation, a visual impairment? Well, that means that not only do you need to buy a computer, but you now need to buy software that's going to read the screen. But it doesn't just stop there. It means that every website you go to must be encoded to work with a screen reader. It means that every form that you download to fill in is designed to work with a screen reader. And the answer, unfortunately, is that far too few of these places are actually designed that way. So we have a group of people who are able to access the internet technically, but are not actually seeing a full integration into the digital world. And so in some ways, it's like we've taken this old world of steps at our front door and steps up and down in small little bathrooms and said, well, if you're in a wheelchair, well, you'll just have to go to your own place. We're doing the exact same thing right now in the digital space where websites, social media platforms are also being designed in an exclusionary way in which disabled people are being asked to adapt to these normative spaces as opposed to designing them to be universally accessible. Yeah, Jeff, I just wanted to say, um, I mean, number one, Candace and I, and, and as well as the other hosts, particularly one of the other hosts have run directly into this issue and we ran into it not knowing um, that, um, I'll just say it, uh, Susie, who is quadriplegic, um, was it Candace that we couldn't sign her, she couldn't sign herself out once she was on a, um, we won't necessarily say the platform's name right now, but on a video conference platform. Yeah. <laughs> and we, we found it out. We had to get her out. It happened on actually two well-known yeah. platforms. And what happens is um, Susie uses her device microphone to access a lot of her aids. Well, that's specific technology. And she stated before that she uses you know, one specific technology. However, maybe the platform that we're trying to use doesn't play nice with the other specific brand of technology. And so what happened in both cases was, well, in one case, she would come into a meeting where we were trying to get into a public webinar and you come in and your microphone is muted. Well, there's no way for her... her it's just she can't reach out and touch her screen to unmute her microphone. And there's no way for the host to do that either. And then in our platform that we were working in, see, we have this idea to bring together a lot of people online in a remote way 
to discuss our accessibility needs and build this accessibility firm. And Susie is one of the few on the ground floor right now. And so she's trying to come into these meetings. And um, if if uh, I host a meeting and I don't kick her out physically, if I forget and I end the call, she is literally locked out her entire life until a human being comes in and turns turns off the thing. Like there, it's it's not a good scene. Yeah, and um, on top of it, now I I have to redrop it because um, I've lost that episode. But on privilege, when I was speaking about privilege in terms of, I don't think a lot of persons who are not who are never been really ill until they become um, elderly, um, they don't realize that a lot of these things come out of your own pocket. So Jeff, when you're starting to talk about software, specialized software, well, that, that's coming out of that person's finances. And if a person's on a limited income, they can't just keep pulling money out of nowhere. You know, it's for software, for like, for the example, the socks that I wear or supposed to be wearing, I don't wear them because of their costs for my my um, swelling in my legs because I'm petite and they would have to be specially made because they don't make them in my size. So then it's double the cost. And it would cost me, I think I figured out I would pay for a house by the time I was 80 on socks. And so, and then on top of it, if I was somebody else in um, a wheelchair and I was on social assistance, how do I pay for the software? Candace? Sorry, yeah, yeah, I'll let so, you go, Candace, then we should get back to Jeff. <laughs> no, <I laughs> See what mean, Jeff has Kyla, to say. Jeff hit on it and then Kyla said it. So um, I've recently been assessed by my occupational therapist as needing a power wheelchair. However, my needs are very different than somebody um, who is in a state like Susie who needs um, a higher quality or uh, maybe more expensive, maybe heavier wheelchair because I am still ambulatory and my needs are different. However, a lot of the, uh, okay. So I live on social assistance. I'm in Ontario and I rely on ODSP for my income until I'm able to create space for myself to live a life and have the employment that I think my skills could lead me toward. Now, um, entrepreneurship is not something covered. And so we talked about the tech. I got off a call today with the employment an, an employment agency that is paid by the Ministry of Community and Social Services to provide employment supports or is supposed to be, but isn't getting the funding. And so like it's it's all over the place. Um, the thing with the wheelchair, I, I something that meets my needs is not covered. So mm -hmm. if I if I were to go with what is covered and what I do qualify for, I would be literally confined to a wheelchair, literally, because then all of a sudden I have to use paratransit and specialized vehicles and things like that no person on social assistance can afford out of pocket. However, these things are not covered and they will not cover a chair for you until you have an accessible unit and things like this. So there's a lot of mess and um, that, that tech divide, wow, does that ever hit home? 
So back to Jeff. Yeah, I, and I think what we see then is this ever-increasing gap between those who have and are actively participating in a society that becomes more and more dependent on your ability to access and use technology and those who don't have access. And that the reason for not having access are varied in many ways. But the problem is that we see the problem largely through what we in the business, us in disability studies, call uh, the individualization of disability, uh, or more specifically, the way that we look at disabled people and say, this is a you problem, not a me problem, or not an us problem. And so your inability to use the laptop is your problem because of your disability, as opposed to saying, why is it that some people get to buy a computer out of box and be able to use it while other people buy a computer and then have to buy a bunch of other things just to be able to have basic use of the computer. And that basic use might not even actually exist. Uh, so to give you a great example of this, uh, there's a group in the United States um, called uh, Able Gamers. Uh, and this is a group of people that got together and were realizing that people did not have access to video games if they weren't able to use standard controllers, uh, the sort of on-the-market controllers like joysticks and that kind of thing. So they started to basically hack the system. Uh, they started to develop their own controllers and try to build ways for people to be able to integrate and build and play games. Uh, and at the beginning of this uh, experience, uh, with people changing controllers, that kind of thing, big businesses, so people like Microsoft and Sony, who make the sort of two big consoles, um, Xbox and PlayStation, uh, were really against people doing this. They did not want people using third-party um, equipment, essentially. They're like, that's not how it's intended for you to interact with this device. Now, luckily, several years ago, Microsoft actually changed their tune, and it was because of the work done by the Able Gamers. Uh, and so what they did was they actually had developed a, a box that you could buy, which was the same price as an Xbox controller, which you were then allowed to basically plug whatever you wanted into it to be able to interface with the Xbox. And so you now had people that were able to plug in the joystick on their wheelchair, for instance, and be able to use their wheelchair joystick to play uh, or to use um, head pads or to be able to use a whole bunch of different buttons and flip, uh, switches and all sorts of great things. And the idea was maybe instead of us telling people how they should play, we should maybe give people the tools to be able to develop their own means of playing. I think that's progress. Uh, it's not all the way there, um, but it's progress. Um, because one thing that we know about tech systems, whether it's um, Microsoft Windows or whether it's Mac OS, uh, these are proprietary systems that are typically extremely locked down. Uh, so even though there are people who have the skills and ability that want to make a difference or want to build things, they often aren't even allowed to, or they're not able to do it without contravening um, copyright and various terms of service and, and user agreements and all these legal structures that prevent us from going in and tinkering. Uh, and so we have a group of people that are being kind of left behind. Uh, and as we become more and more dependent on technology, uh, specifically information communication technology, that gap is just going to grow bigger and bigger. And the downstream effects of that are everything from a lack of social connection all the way to a lack of employment opportunity or even the ability to enter into the workforce at all. 
Um, you know, I've I've heard employers that have had concerns about hiring people with disabilities because they're worried about the tech cost. They're worried that there's massive cost on their business to buy all of these devices to allow them to uh, to be able to work. Uh, which, in my experience, is often not usually accurate. Um, it's usually not a massive expense typically, um, and when it is, uh, you know. It's something we need to think differently then about. Maybe we need to think differently about the types of technologies and supports that we're providing people um, because as it is right now, we're actually missing a huge part of the viable workforce that we're merely passing over because we just couldn't be bothered. Um, I mean, this is something we've all just discussed recently. Like, for example, um, and I hate I hate pulling from Susie. One day we should get Susie and Jeff on a call together here. Um, but, um, you know, Susie was a social worker. And so Susie has the ability to counsel people. And so I'm just starting with the patient's perspective in our group. Our private group is starting, um, restarting something that I tried to start a year ago where, which is virtual um, meetings in terms of social um, activities, as well as little support groups where you have icebreakers and then you talk afterwards, right? Um, but like, um, so I've asked Susie to help me with that because that is something Susie is still capable of. Mm-hmm. Susie's fully capable, you know, as long as, I can start the meetings for her and all that sort of stuff. She's fully capable of still being a facilitator. There's, there's no need for, um, uh, for, for Susie not to be able to do that. You know, that is yeah. something that she can still do, but then, uh, great. I'm starting to miss the other, other point that I was going to, uh, to make about that. Oh yes. Um, we we live in a society that wants disabled persons to work, but they don't want to provide the the, the funding for that for the the tech for them to be able to become more able to reintegrate into the workforce. Candice? yeah. So it's it's um it's interesting because the thought of this business that we're, we're really like, we've talked about this before. We're still in planning stages, but we are, we're determined to make this thing go connected hearts, helping Canada, um, an accessibility firm built by people with accessibility needs. Now, the reason for that is because I had a wake up call. I was, I'm 38 years old and I was calling myself forced retired. And then I was trying to jump through all the hoops just to navigate my own health care. And I was joking, saying, for my next forced retirement, I'm going to be a systems navigator and patient advocate. Well, lo and behold, if Susie didn't jump on that one, and and Kyla and I all did a working group, and um, so we're we're going to try to build this. But my point here is I'm a very educated person. I spent five years studying post-secondary. I have classical music education. I have pedagogy. I'm, I'm a teacher. I'm a lifelong learner. I'm a total nerd. 
right? <laughs> and I've been volunteering in my communities for a decade and a half. Well, here in London, Ontario, I mean, just Google me. I've been given awards by Festival Events Ontario, um, uh, community organizations, just because of my volunteerism. Now, the reason for my volunteerism was because I didn't th think I was worth anything more than that because I was deemed permanently disabled while I was in university, right? Mm -hmm. So from like 2008 until 2022, I literally thought I was useless unless I worked for nothing. And I don't think that's the case. I think there's so many people with disabilities that have these superpowers and high amounts of skills and you know if the company puts in a little bit of money for the tech or maybe the governments put in a little bit of money for the tech for us to be able to realize our potential yep. then we're contributing to the economy and there's less money being doled out for these people that they like to paint as sometimes even fraudsters by mm -hmm. our leaders right mm -hmm. so that's my little rant Yep. Back yeah. to you, Jeff. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think one of the most insidious things, uh, one of the most insidious mythologies of our culture uh, is the idea that it's the disabled person that has the problem. Uh, you know, people will often stop me. They say, I'm in a wheelchair, uh, you know, and they'll say, what's wrong or what happened to you? Uh, and, you know, I always sort of joke that, uh, you know, one of these days when they ask me that, I'm going to answer, uh, well, I was born into an ableist society. Uh, that is the main problem because we have to ask ourselves, you know, is it muscular dystrophy that disables me or is it that we have built a world around me that does not assume that a wheelchair user would ever wish to be in the public spaces that exist or that a wheelchair user would ever wish to get an education or would ever wish to work? Uh, we have built a world that presumes uh, somebody that has functioning legs and arms in a very specific way. And then we act surprised when they're not able to uh, to do things. Uh, and then we misidentify the problem uh, as being perhaps the biological impairment or the biological difference. Uh, that is a, a really significant a huge problem. And I think we do a disservice to people that confront disability, particularly later in life. I mean, I was I was lucky in some ways that I was born with a disability. Uh, I never knew a world of walking. I never knew a world of normality. Uh, I never had a quote fall from grace that we presume that people experience when they confront disability later in life. Uh, and so uh, of course people end up with these sort of deep emotional ties to their past selves, deep emotional ties to this desired normalcy, because we've been told our entire lives that the normal people are the ones that are correct. And the disabled people are the ones who have the problem that need to change, that need to be fixed. And if they don't fix, if they don't get changed, that uh, that's ultimately their fault, uh, that they just weren't working hard enough or they didn't have the right attitude. Right. I mean, we always see on the Internet, the only disability in life is a bad attitude. Uh, I mean, that and also all the other, you know, biological uh, disabilities have been identified. Uh, as, you know, just a few. There's just a few of them, <laughs> more or less, uh, just a few. Uh, but I think that when we if we, we bring this back to this conversation of technology, we we have another really interesting, fun thing uh, when it comes to adaptation and, and disability uh, and technology, which is. Uh, there are a lot of people out there, a lot of tech people. Um, I'm going to refer to them as tech bros, uh, and I'm going to use that as a pejorative. 
uh, in a lot of senses. Uh, so if you're offended by me using the term tech bro, you might be a tech bro. Uh, and maybe I'm actually aiming this target at you. Uh, but there are a lot of tech bros out there in the world who are coming at disability from the same mindset as, uh, as the, you know, the clinician, uh, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago, who are saying, well, the disability is a problem and I'm going to go in there and I'm going to fix it. Uh, I'm going to go in there. I'm going to cure it. Uh, and so we have this like, great example in which you have uh, medical researchers, technology people coming together and they develop what they call the cochlear implant to try to cure people of deafness. Uh, and you have this backlash from the deaf community who are like, whoa, 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 we never said we wanted to hear. We have our own culture. We have our entire world, uh, the deaf world, the deaf culture uh, that we're really proud of and that your technology is actually invalidating and it's actually killing us in some ways. And people say, well, that seems like hyperbole. Well, what does it mean that we see lower and lower funding offered to ASL schools right here in Ontario? Because the pressure is for children born who are deaf, the pressure is, well, why wouldn't you want to join the hearing world? The technology exists and it's way cheaper. It's way cheaper than uh, you know, funding a K to 12 schooling system that's taught in ASL. And so we have this other side, this sort of dark underbelly of technology in which non-disabled people and people who are maybe not directly connected to the, uh, to the community or connected to people that have experiences, uh, of these disabilities who then try to intervene. They create a new technology that attempts to eliminate the disability and because of economic factors and a variety of other things, we then shift our opinion, we shift our view, and we dump all of our resources into that instead, uh, which can then have huge ramifications for the ways that people gather, the way that they connect. Uh,